Hi, friends. Today on the Successful-ish podcast, we're talking to award-winning designer Dave Matley, answering questions like, what makes a good designer? What elements does every design need? What does design have to do with things like company culture and leadership? What really needs to be considered in the relationships between design, marketing, and business growth? As always, we try to keep our conversations uninterrupted because we like it that way. If you would like to help keep it that way, you can support this podcast by visiting anchor.fm slash successfulish slash support. Another day, another task, think fast with a whole nother mission complete. Successfulish. Pick up the weight, press on, and act on the visions of see. I'm successfulish. Sit back and bask in the glory of all the goals I achieved. Successfulish. Lose a stack, get it back, reinvest, hope, wait, then I roll up my sleeve. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Successfulish. I'm Sarah Michelle, and I am so excited to kick off this mini creative series. All month long, we're going to be talking about how to be more successful in creative fields like video, photography, and writing. And today, we're kicking it off with design, talking to one of my favorite designers. Dave Matley is an award-winning creative brand strategy and marketing leader who's built and repositioned billion-dollar consumer product brands, as well as zero-to-one launches of fintech and crypto startups, leading both internal and external marketing, creative and product teams to produce their best work and drive growth. Just a few of his many accomplishments. He has won Clio Awards, working with brands like NBA Sonics, Alaska Airlines, and Levi's. He rebranded the Harry Potter retail franchise to become the most lucrative product license in Warner's history, grew Sesame Street product with new licenses until it threatened nonprofit status. He is an agency founder working in consumer research strategy and brand launches for for companies like Warner Brothers, Disney, Fox, Zynga, MGM Capital, UMG, Paramount, Iron Mountain, Lego, Allstate, and Haggerty Insurance. He was the VP of Global Creative and Marcom for LeapFrog, taking the company from number seven to number two most trusted kids brand in one year, improving employee satisfaction by 13% and reducing marketing costs by 50%. He's also been the CMO for the largest crypto launch agency and fractional CMO CMO in industries such as blockchain, fintech, telehealth, mobility device, construction tech, PE rollup and enterprise ad tech, and for the past six years has been a head of marketing to VC-backed startups focused on product launching and funding. Whew. Aside from this incredibly impressive resume, he is also a great husband and father to two baby girls who are not really babies anymore and a ridiculously talented artist. I am lucky enough to be related to Dave and being in the world of branding and advertising, I've always admired his work and envied his resume a little bit. But to me, the coolest job he ever had was with Fox because that was one of the few channels that we had growing up and were allowed to watch. And I was obsessed with shows like S Club 7. And I remember one year for Christmas, we got a giant box of Fox swag. And I remember thinking, Uncle David knows the S Club. He is so cool. He is the coolest person in the family. Uh, So Dave, thank you so much for joining us. I'm excited to share some of your expertise today. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, it's great to be here. Yeah, it's funny. My uh, my daughters also were a lot more excited when I had uh, stuff from Sesame Street and from LeapFrog than when I then switched over to like health tech and fintech. Now they think that's pretty boring. But yeah, give them a few more years before they get into the crypto, maybe, maybe middle school that'll, that'll come into play. 
Um, well, I've always enjoyed learning from you professionally, but also just observing your lifestyle, which was a little bit different from your older brother who raised me and our family lifestyle. And we had your sister Liz in the studio not that long ago. And we were talking about how with family, there's this kind of weird dynamic where you know each other through other people's descriptions. And as a kid, I really only knew you through the way that my parents talked about you and kind of vice versa. And so it's been fun to get to reconnect as adults and actually get to know each other. Yeah, it has been. Um, I think it's great that you you actually went down the sort of the road of like marketing and branding and kind of being a marketing consultant yourself. Um, actually, I wish we'd had more chance to sort of get to know each other, but we live on opposite sides of the country. Yep. Um, but yeah, I, I, and I love this podcast that you're doing too. So um, it's, it's good to connect. I mean, we'll be able to connect more after this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think creatives in general, I feel like think a little differently. I almost feel like you have to be a little misunderstood to be a true creative. And I feel like that genetic sort of runs in our family intermittent shows up in different ways. There's kind of this family gene of creativity and, um, eccentricity. Is that a word? Can I make eccentric a word? Eccentricity? Um, There's some eccentric people (laughs) in the Matley clan. I'm curious in your perspective, how do you feel like the family dynamic, both growing up and then now the family dynamic that you have now, how have those different environments sort of impacted your creativity or your relationship with creativity? Well, um, yeah. So growing up, uh, your, your grandpa, my dad, uh, he was a, you know, he was a PhD in like mathematics and early computing engineer, very eccentric himself. And like, basically the measuring stick that everything was, was measured against was education. So, um, and, and a very sort of like engineering slash accounting, very spreadsheet version of education as like the only acceptable type of education. I mean, as a kid, I, I think these days I would have been diagnosed with ADHD, but at the time they weren't doing that unless you were actually like running around the classroom, like hitting people with stuff, you know, but I was the kid that was like staring out the windows and drawing spaceships on my math worksheet. And I was constantly in detention because I wasn't paying attention. Um, the only stuff I paid attention to was anything that was story-based. So like when we actually read stories in class, not necessarily like the English where you're like, you're diagramming sentences and stuff. So I don't know. I kind of felt from the beginning that like uh, in a certain way, I was never going to be successful in any kind of way because, you know, my, the way I was brought up is that success looks like you are this left-brained mathematical person that's very structurally oriented. And I seem to have none of that. Um, So uh, when I got old enough, you know, I, I realized you know, all the way through the time I was growing up, the stuff I loved to do was write stories and draw. And um, that's, you know, I made friends with it. Kids would ask me to draw stuff for them. Um, I, I never really thought I was going to be able to go to a college because, again, I didn't really have, think that academically I would be able to, even though I had decent grades. It was just really more the the conditioning from my, my dad that made me believe that. Um, so I didn't even really try. And, uh, and I even like my writing was good enough that like a lot of kids that got into like really good schools, they basically paid me to write their entry, uh, essays for them. Like I was, (laughs) I didn't have a problem with that stuff at all. I was like, yeah, that's fine. You can go on your path. And, um, so that was kind of the place where I ended up where by the time I was sort of college age, I kind of looked at, you know, what I could do. And I was like, I think 
the only real career paths I have in front of me are something where I'm either going to write something or something where I can design and create something. And um, my mom had been a little more encouraging in terms of like, you know, having me do painting classes and things like that growing up. She was kind of more encouraging about it. But um, I, I think, you know, I just think I didn't really realize you could make a living doing creative things until I, you know, had been doing roofing work and waiting tables and all these kinds of menial sort of like hard labor jobs and realized that like there was no future in it. And I had to go to college and figure out a career for myself. And then that's the first time I started really researching that, oh, you could actually make a living doing one of these things. Um, and so that's kind of like is what made me decide to go to a design school. Uh, um, ultimately, is I felt like I did some research, I'm like, well, I can either be a writer or I can be a designer. And it looks like designers make a little more money than writers do earlier in their career. So I'm going to do, I'm going to go to design school. So that's kind of how I ended up on the path I ended up on. And then once I was there, I met all kinds of people who had this totally different worldview and, and where it was an, an assumption that creativity was a, was a path to actual, you know, financial stability and success and recognition. Um, so it was, it was a revelation for me when I actually went to um, the design school I went to, which is art center in Pasadena. Yeah. I think a lot of creatives resonate with that story. I know Walt Disney failed out of school, was told he was never going to do anything. Like a lot of creative people were not good at traditional school. And I know even for myself, I feel like you sort of paved the way to make my road a little bit easier because my parents didn't want me to be creative at all. Um, and we joked about it when my dad was on the podcast, when I told them that I had changed my major to advertising communications, they were furious. And my dad's direct quote was communications majors end up sweeping up peanuts at the Leno show. That's all you're going to do. You're never going to amount to anything. And I was like, well, I don't know, man, uncle David seems pretty good. Like he has a nice house. He has a good family. Like he took the creative route. Um, so it sort of became a case proof for me to run after the creative career. But I feel like there, it, it's interesting. Anytime I feel like you're pushing against the norm or kind of going against the conveyor belt and you're trying to think differently. And what's crazy to me is that we have so many bios and case studies of people who did that, that have been crazy successful. You would think that we would kind of understand that by now. Um, and I also think it's interesting. I know that you shifted a little bit from the design space into the more VP marketing space, which is a little more data-driven. So I want to talk a little bit about that. But before we go too far down the road, what is something that you failed at this week? What's something that you're figuring out? Um, well, um, so I've been reading this book called Atomic Habits by James Clear. I don't know if you've read it or not. Uh, I haven't. I've heard it's really good, though. Highly recommend it. Um, and so I've been basically trying to implement sort of new habits in my life. You know, there's always things like in the back of your mind, like, you know, I should do this and it could be whatever exercise it should, it could be like, I want to, you know, I, I've, I've always wanted to like write novels and screenplays, but then like, I never seem to find time for it and stuff. Um, so trying to make a habit around that. And he has a very, you know, specific approach in terms of how your brain functions and stuff like that. So a lot of what I've been doing is trying to like implement these new habits, but um, what I find and what I failed at this week, which I uh, has been a problem all along is just probably what a lot of people do, which is constant distraction, right? You go to research one thing and you end up down a rabbit hole or some question on Quora catches your attention and then 20 minutes goes by and you realize you've read like five articles. So I'm still trying to, I guess, combat my own 
I, it, it's not a bad thing to be curious about stuff, to always like kind of want to like go down that rabbit hole, but uh, it can be a huge distraction compared with, you know, if you have your sort of two or three big things, you know, you have to accomplish this week. I think I still struggle with that. And uh, so that's probably, been, probably been my main problem this week. Um, our, our anniversary is on Friday. And so fortunately I didn't fail at getting my wife a present. Um, that was touch and go, but I finally got that taken care of. So uh, that's the biggest one I had to take care of this week. <laughs> well, good. congratulations on remembering. I feel like that's an accomplishment in <laughs> itself. Um, yeah, I think with habits, that consistency is really tough. I'm leading a book club right now. We're going through the, um, the habits of highly successful people or high, I'm totally butchering the word. It's by Brendan Burchard. Um, but basically going through the six things that you have to have to have healthy habits and that consistency piece, I think has been the struggle for all of us of just sticking with something and it's the little tiny things, you know, it's not the big things that get in the way. It's like the little teeny pieces of staying focused and showing up for yourself when you don't necessarily see that immediate progress. Um, that's definitely a challenge, but I know that I want to talk a little bit about your transition in design, because I know that you started sort of with more traditional design and graphics, and then you moved over into more of a marketing space. And, I know that I've been in kind of both sides of that. I've never done the graphic end, but I know the creative side, the marketing side, there were a lot of debates between the creative flow and having hard analytics and how that worked together. So I'm a little curious to hear about your transition through the world of design and marketing and how you balance that space between creativity and what resonates with the user, but also making the marketing people happy with having actual numbers and tangible data. Yeah, it's, um, it's been pretty interesting. I feel like the further you go, um, as a creative, uh, sooner or later, you're going to come like back your way into doing some kind of consumer research. Like, and now it's like more expected, like um, it's pretty common. I mean, there didn't used to be a separate discipline of like UX design and UI design and all this stuff, but like, it's now fully expected that if you're going to design a user experience for an app or something, you're also going to be conducting like user testing constantly. Right. And that you're going to, in this user testing, some of it's qualitative, but a lot of it is strictly quantitative. It's like, how many people clicked on that button? Well, what if I do it this color, or what if I move it over here? And you have like these, these metrics around that particular design discipline, which is still, is basically app design, product design, right? But it's the way it's done right now is that total marriage of metrics and design where it doesn't assume that just because that just because you had an intu intuition that something would be right for another person that you were necessarily right on the, you know right on right on the money like when you had that initial hypothesis and i think sooner or later like all design is going to go more and more that direction just because the way we consume design is is now something that's, that's measurable in a way that billboards and um, print ads didn't really used to be um, more and more of the media we consume is, is something that you can put a number against and which creates an opportunity for designers and marketers to kind of become more partners than they've been in the past. Like I've been in a lot of big companies and had that frustration when I was like an individual designer and then at a creator director level, and then even running whole departments, like I would still have that same conflict 
with my, my partners in marketing who were like supposed to be co-equals, but, um, I felt like it was a, it was kind of a combination of, of misunderstandings of what each other needed to do and what the process needed to be and what each party sort of needed from the other in order to succeed. Um, so I think small companies do it better just because there's no room for, you know, making up work or hiding information or, you know, but I, I think, and, and also like, there's always something new to research that you don't know the answers of. I think, I think the, the conflict that you're sort of mentioning between sort of marketers and strategists and maybe creatives and designers usually in my experience exists in medium to larger size companies. Um, and uh, it's kind of this like layer of in my, it's totally biased, right? Coming from the person who came out of the creative side before I went over to sort of like being a marketing person. But um, I think a lot of times you have people who are in a larger corporation. They don't have daily or weekly metrics that's tied to their performance. They, they do all the stuff you're supposed to do that they learned about when they got their MBA or whatever about like market sizing, addressable market, and like who's the competitive set and what's your differentiation compared to them. And then they, they maybe they even do the consumer research and they're like, okay, these are the most relevant things that matter most to my end consumer. And you find that nexus, the point where the thing that's the most, the biggest unmet need, the pain point overlapping with what's our biggest differentiator and you nail down the positioning and you get the message hierarchy. But then in a larger corporation, there's not really a lot for that mid-level marketing person to do, right? So they have a Monday morning meeting with their boss. They're supposed to update them on what they need to, what they've been working on. And you're at a brand building space. Like at this point, it's kind of the designer and the writer's job to like follow the blueprint that you laid out and, and execute on it. Um, and there's a period of time where you, you can't really do much, but just stand over their shoulder and ask them if they're done yet. Right. Or if they're ready for you to look at it yet. And I think that's a very precarious position where I think a lot of marketing, like people at the coordinator manager, maybe even director level, depending on the size of the company, like feel maybe rightfully so like, how do I justify my paycheck? I need something to talk about in this thing, you know, like this meeting and I need some way to weigh in. So in, in meetings, design is an easy thing to weigh in on. Like, you know, you can't give an opinion about like, you know, what the CFO is talking about or what procurement's talking about or like how, how the sales process is going, like, but everybody can give an opinion about whether they like that color. Right. Like, um, so it's like, it's a low hanging fruit. There's no wrong answer. Everyone can pipe up when their boss's boss is in the room and say, say something smart. And it sort of fills this gap, you know, I, I think where in larger corporations, there's not, a, there's not a specific thing for these people to do until they actually then launch a campaign, right? Then there's metrics that they, there's things to manage. There's teams to manage. There's media to buy. There's like metrics to, to measure and, and pivot against. But it's unfortunately that brand building phase, I think, where there's a lot of conflict. And I think it's in, in those type of companies. And then on the flip side, it's not just the marketer side. It's like, the, you know, some designers are not really honest about being commercial artists too, right? Like they want to be a fine artist and have their vision, you know, come through and have something that they can impress their cool design friends with, not necessarily something that delivers on the strategy. So there's a little bit of that as well where, 
you know, if you're going to be a fine artist, you, you, you can't take money from a company and say you're going to deliver on a strategy, right? And then you design something basically for yourself instead. You have to, you know, you're not being honest about what you're doing. You're just basically trying to be a subsidized fine artist and make something that's not going to work for what the business strategy is. So it's a little of both in there, I would say. Um, but what I have found is like when I work in smaller companies, there's just no room for that. And um, it's a lot more of a direct line where the person who's getting the information about the market and the business strategy and formulating it into a way that's executable for the creative is a partner with the creative. And they they both have the same metrics they're trying to pull and there's no right or wrong answer. So I don't know how big companies get there, but the closer they can get to that, the more effective they are and the less of this kind of like conflict there seems to be. Yeah. Well, and I think that shows sort of an involvement and maturity in the team that you're working with. And I, a lot of it, I think comes down to culture. And I know I've been a part of teams that have had different cultures. Um, the agency that I started in, there was a lot of ego in that culture. And so it was constant fights of the creatives. We know best we're creative design runs the show and the account managers say, no, we know best. We're the strategists. We run the show. And then nothing got done because they would just get into these huge, like, I mean, not to be crude, but dick measuring contests was basically what happened all over the agency and nothing got done. And then I switched over to a corporate role and it was almost opposite where the design team was like, well, just tell us what to draw. We don't want to be the ones in charge of it. And then the account team was like, well, just draw something and we'll tell you if it's good or not. And so it was just interesting, the different dynamics, but I think you're right that that honesty and self-awareness is so important when you're on a team, especially if you're being creative, because I know that I've worked with creatives before where they get so frustrated because they don't want to design something that's strategic, that the client likes, they just want to make pretty things. That Mm -hmm. is their life ambition is to make pretty things and they're so good at it and they create these beautiful things and you get them and you're like, Oh, this is beautiful, but I can't show this to the client because it's, it doesn't resonate. It's not going to work. And so I think that honesty is really important. How have you sort of found your place of authenticity and design? Because I know that when you're working for someone else and at this point in your career, I feel like you've probably overcome that hurdle, but especially when you're starting off, I feel like sometimes you have to play the game. Sometimes you have to design for someone else before you've sort of earned that right for your voice to be heard. What has that been like for you of sort of finding that balance of designing for someone else, designing for yourself and finding your voice in that creativity? Yeah. So I would say, um, I guess, I never viewed myself as a, as a fine artist really at all. Um, I'm uh, completely a commercial artist, which is to say I don't design unless like there's um, a purpose to do it. Like even, even on my free time, like I enjoy design when I'm doing it, but it's like, I won't just start designing cool stuff on the side. Like I, I view that as like a fine art type thing. Like the stuff I do creatively on the side, just on my own is like writing. Like I, I like I'll write stories and things like that. But to me, like design is always uh, serving the purpose of basically connecting with another human being at kind of a gut level. And it's trying to influence their behavior, right? It's, it's part of the overall advertising and marketing goal, which is basically to get someone to do something, right? To like, 
not compel them, but to influence them to think about something or to make a decision or to go to a website or to click on a button or do something, right? Like, so to me, I've never really had a problem sort of shelving my own design voice because I always thought that's what I was supposed to be doing anyway. And because of that, I'm somewhat of a populist designer. Like I have had really cool projects where I've gotten a chance to do super high, high style design. You know, I, I think like maybe when we did the rebrand for Capital Studios, that was an opportunity to do very sophisticated, modernist, like really cool, simple typography design work. Um, but likewise, I mean, I've also designed stuff for Sesame Street and that's like your target audience is like a four-year-old, right? And it's like, bright colors and, you know, crazy stuff going on is like what they respond to. And there's no way that you would look at that and be like, that's good quality design. I mean, there's better versions of it than others, but I mean, to me, I'm kind of a populist about the thing. And I always feel like it's not successful unless it's the only purpose of it is to connect with that in person. So um, I know a lot of people like what you're talking about that uh, they have a specific creative voice. A lot of them, I kind of think of them also almost more like illustrators where they have a style, right? Where it's like, and what you're getting when you get that person is someone who is a craftsman at that particular style and they have a real voice. Um, but that's where I've always sort of treated them as um, like freelancers where it's like, you bring them on for a specific product or project if that's what you need is that particular style or voice or something like that but they probably would not be happy and would not do a good job in-house as a generalist i mean in in-house you need generalists who like are totally happy switching their entire design style to whatever the brief needs to be you know and so there are different types of designers and i've always been more the generalist type so I want to talk a little bit more about that because I think that you are so right on that. And I know that I work with designers all the time. Clients come to me and I don't have one set designer in my company. I have several that have different styles and based on who the client is, I'll refer them based on the artist style and their pricing and all of that. And a lot of times when I talk to clients who are owning businesses, they know that they need good design in business and they almost have this attitude of a designer is a designer. If someone knows graphic design, they know graphic design. And I, to your point, a lot of designers have different styles. Some are really locked into their one style. And um, I know I work with several illustrators where I love their work, but it's specific. They can only do that one thing that they do really well, as yeah. opposed to a different kind of designer that would be able to be a little more adaptable. So as a business leader who knows that they need to hire a designer or a branding agency, what are some things that they should be looking for or some questions that they should be asking to help them sort of discern who the right design partner might be? Yeah. So um, you kind of hinted at this, but I think the first thing is to be really honest with yourself about what you want out of this. Right. Um, and I've worked with a bunch of different types of clients. So there's, there's some people or companies that they, they have a clear vision in mind of what they want. And they really just want someone with the software skills and the design training to execute their vision. And kind of the hardest part 
is to figure out how to read their mind, right? Like I know exactly what I want. I just, I can't get it out of my brain and into the world. And so your role is not to bring something new that I've never thought about before. It's to help me articulate this thing that's in the back of my mind. And along the way, if you have the skill sets to make it even better than what I thought I wanted, then that's, that's even better. But I would be happy if you just helped me distill this thing into reality, right? That's one, that's kind of a generalist designer. And it's probably, you don't even really need an agency for that. You could probably get away with like a good generalist freelancer if that's what you need, because it's just, you know, it's like you trying to get your vision into the world. There's like other companies that are maybe more like uh, metrics driven, like CFO types um, or like engineers who started companies. And like, they just want a business outcome and they know that design is a necessary part of the process, but they don't really care what it looks like or how it works. They, as long as it hits the business goal, then it's right. And that's all they care about. So that gives a lot of freedom for designers. You probably need to be maybe a consultancy with a few designers you can pull in uh, or maybe an agency, a small agency does really well with these types of projects. Um, but it also requires a little bit more than just design because they're also leaving it up you to figure out what the positioning and messaging hierarchy is and probably the customer journey and path to purchase. So you got to have some chops in terms of like being able to map out enough of what the, you know, what is the process of someone first hearing about us and then why would they consider us and why do they get interested and then how do we close them? you have to kind of do the research around that for them and kind of lead them through that process. But the design is oftentimes really up to you. Like they don't care. They're, they're trusting you to make the right decision. And if it doesn't work, they're going to tell you that it didn't work and they want something different. Um, and then the other ones are kind of more of the big company thing, right? Where uh, like large corporations, if they're going to do a major design project, they'll hire someone like a pentagram or, you know, another big agency, right? And what they want is like an agency to take them on a journey. They want like, they, they have all these different departments that have some kind of level of weigh in and say, and maybe they don't have approval authority, but they have rejection authority over stuff. And if one executive in that organization just unilaterally decided to do a major change, it would not work because they're going to get so much blowback and pushback from all of their peers and other departments and people griping. And anytime something goes wrong, they're going to get blamed for this thing they did a year ago where they rebranded this thing. So that, that service where you go through this, like, we're going to do this 30 person group brainstorming together. And we're going to do, like, it's kind of like a, a little bit of a creative theater, you know, like there's a little, there's a, there's a drama to the thing. There's an unfolding. There's a, we're, we're going to be an Oracle and a Sherpa and take you on this magical creative journey. And by the time we're done, we're all unified that we created this together, right? Like that seems like a huge waste of time and money to people who are not in those organizations. But if you're an executive who needs to get this done, that actually could be the most efficient way to make a major change happen is by having this magical outside agency that you paid just crazy amounts of money to to take you on this sort of like journey where now everybody in the company is invested in the final decision. So I don't know, I think the first thing is like, before you pick a designer or design agency, you gotta be really honest about how are you gonna evaluate success? Like, what is it you really want out of this? Do you want a quick one and done, just make something, I need a logo by tomorrow before this investor meeting? Fine, then go on Fiverr. There's tons of like 
okay designers that are on there that are super cheap, you know, that can just get something that looks better than you did it yourself onto, onto a screen faster than you can and for cheap, you know, but if your situation is a little different, then you got to really think about how are you going to evaluate success? And then that's kind of, I think would lead to the types of questions that you want. Um, I don't know if it kind of answered your question or maybe over answered your question. Yeah, (laughs) no, I I'm curious from your perspective, because I feel like on my end of things, I feel like those conversations are going deeper than they used to. And I personally think it's for the best, but I think that, I think that I've seen a shift where design used to be, how do we make a pretty design that sells product? But now there's this bigger push of connecting brands with culture and with leadership and transparency, especially in the world of social media. Consumers care a lot more about working with B Corps or working with mission-minded companies. The integrity of a business and their culture is becoming more prominent. Consumers are starting to care more. So I'm curious from your perspective, how that's changed the approach of design, because it used to be, I feel like you could just design something pretty and nobody really had a way of finding out, you know, Trader Joe's is a a great example. You go shop the shelves of Trader Joe's, everything looks healthy. Mm. And if you actually read the nutrition labels, (laughs) they're not, I'm, I'm sorry if you are a Trader Joe's shopper, I hate to break your heart, but, um, it's, it's junk food, delicious junk food, but junk food. And that used to be fine, but now I feel like there's people who are pushing back and saying, well, why are you designing something to make it look one way when that doesn't honor the integrity of what the product actually is or what the business actually is? What's your opinion on how that, how that big picture brand integrity has overlapped into design? Um, God, that's a great question, actually. Um, yeah, I think in general, like the corporate world in general is kind of being dragged into a level of integrity that they never really used to have to have. And you can see it with the Me Too movement. You can see it like across the board, right? Like there's all kinds of social implications for decisions that are made in, you know, small rooms, you know, with, you know, like-minded people that have for a long time affected, you know, the culture that we live in. And it's just like with the rise of social media, there's a lot of downsides about the rise of social media. But one of the upsides is that, you know, the voice of a lot of people that that were never okay with this are, are being heard in a way that they weren't. And they can connect directly with brands and they can damage brands. Um, like, so, you know, there's, there's a lot, of, I, I have personally like a lot of complaints about social media companies and and the way that they they manage or don't manage this kind of content but there is some upsides and that's that's some of the upside is that all these companies are being forced to be quite a bit more honest about their product offerings how they go to the market um, what their advertising is like and maybe part of that maybe it's just like a different generation that, that values design more but I've seen just in my career, that there's a respect for creative and design that didn't used to be there. Like when I started my career, I mean, I was like, it was all baby boomer era people that like ran all the companies that I was in when I was in my, my twenties, like first starting out. And like the, there's very much like a mentality in the space of like designers and creatives. Um, 
yeah, they're, they, they do these cool looking things, but anytime we're going to talk about business, we're going to, you know, the adults are going to excuse the kids and, and ask them to leave the room. Right. And a lot of designers and creatives kind of played into this. Like I worked in ad agencies early on where like a lot of the creatives like would like affect these childish behaviors. Right. So like they would, you know, also, you know, be doing stuff like playing water tag in the halls and stuff like that. Cause they're, they're the cool creative people. And I'm like, yeah, but you're also, that's also the reason why you're dismissed from the meeting when it, when it's time to talk about revenue, right. And talk about, you know, conversion and success, right. Where the decisions are actually being made that will affect, you know, what you're going to work on for the next two years. Right. Um, so I think there's, you know, maybe on both sides, like designs gotten uh, a lot more respect in the corporate boardrooms. And there now there's now, you know, chief, design officers, even chief product officers are not necessarily engineers anymore. Sometimes they're UX people, um, chief, you know, customer experience officers, which is kind of like this sort of catch all between customer su support and brand and, uh, you know, anything that basically touches a consumer. Um, there's, there's no way that would have happened early on in the career. And I think part of it is probably driven by this realization that, um, the brand is is really important and it's a valuable asset and the old way of doing things um, is not going to necessarily always work like going forward that you have to have a, a level of integrity and connect with people on, on a human level and if you're not going to do that um, then people are gonna you know call you out on the things that are not true that you're saying to them like they'll yeah. find it well and I think largely consumers no longer want to have flings with brands. They want to have relationships. And that's been a big shift where branding used to be the logo, the colors, the website, just sort of that first impression. You know, it was a, it was a fling. Here's the impression I have of this brand. Consumers don't want that anymore. They also, it matters what your company culture is. It matters what your leadership thinks. It matters who your CEO is and what they're doing in their personal time. Yeah. We used to not know. CEO could be doing whatever he wanted and we had no idea, but now we have LinkedIn, we have Facebook, we have, you know, all these different things. So it, it's become a much deeper, um, I think it was always there, but now the consumer has more access to the deeper components of a brand. And I think that also this generation, especially the one coming up are just masters at sniffing out the bullshit. Yes. They're so good at knowing when a company is full of it and they're not being honest. And so again, that integrity piece is really important. How would you classify a good designer? Because I think that when it comes to design, art is subjective. A lot of it is going to come to opinion, but I also think we all know a bad designer when we meet one. So what criteria would you say that we should look for to, to signify this is a quality designer? Well, um, so I maybe split that into maybe two questions, I guess. So there's, uh, there's the designers and there's the design itself, right? So um, bad designers will design anything bad, right? Doesn't matter the genre, the audience, the media, like it doesn't matter. With, like they're, they're just not going to be very good at it. The fastest way um, that I've found to just determine whether someone probably has the chops to be able to design something is really just typography is the number one thing. I mean, as a skill set, like 
someone who has learned how to do something, even if it's a portfolio piece, right? But it's black and white type only on a white space and they can make it look beautiful. They can make anything look beautiful. Like there's like, um, that's like the only way to learn that is by studying other designers and practicing for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours to get good at it. Um, and I would say maybe color sensibility is another one. You can maybe kind of tell if someone's sort of half-assing stuff, if like all of their color palettes are basically the default colors that show up in Illustrator or Photoshop or Sketch or Figma or something. There's a default color palette. If that's their color palette, they're probably not working that hard. <laughs> um, so I would say those are like, I mean, general, like small shortcut rules of thumbs to be able to catch it earlier. But, um, but generally speaking, you can look at work and know that if it's just not that good. And there's no reason to hire bad designers anymore. I mean, in the world of like Upwork and Fiverr and stuff like that now, like you have an entire world of aspiring designers that are open to you. And most of the people that are on there are not that great, but they're not bad. Like they're good enough for what like, you know, if you're like a local laundromat or something like that, they're fine for you, right? Like they're, they're fine for most of small business America to put together a brochure or make a sign or whatever. They're, they're, you know, competent and qualified and a lot cheaper even than like, you know, American talent is anymore. Um, you want to go a step up from that, you go to like Behance and you actually go through portfolios and you find people that you think is interesting and you can reach out to them directly and basically make them an offer. I found a lot of great designers that way myself and you can get um, and, and a lot of times they're not, you know, again, you, you, you may be able to get some kind of arbitrage if they're in a country where, you know, that, you know, the dollar goes a lot further, although that's somewhat disappearing in the last couple of years. Um, so I would say that's one thing, right? There's not really a reason to hire bad designers anymore. Like you don't have to, um, bad design is different. That kind of goes back to that other thing I was saying before, which is that that's all about the audience, right? So you can look at someone. I'll tell you, like I, when I was at Sesame Street, I was asked to design this book for toddlers and I designed this thing and it was, um, and I was very proud of it. It was like very like crisp typography and all the characters have these like bright, you know, they're like almost kind of graphic shaped and these bright primary colors. And so I had this sort of like sparely designed book with these simple graphics in the background and muted tones of their colors. And then I, um, a few years later then actually had a kid. And then when my daughter was old enough to read that book with, with me, I sat her on my lap and I opened that book up and she was so bored with it. She thought it was so boring and kept reaching for like the, you know, the I spy Christmas book, which I don't know if you've seen those I spy books from a design standpoint, they're garbage, right? It's like, by definition, it's like a where's Waldo photography book, right? It's like, it's, the most cluttered thing ever, terrible storytelling, bad typography. It doesn't matter, but like to a three-year-old, that is a great experience, right? And like, ultimately, I'm not a person that buys into the, like, you know, your, you know, your sophisticated, cool design friends from design school need to kind of give you the nod of approval on your work. It's like, that does not matter. The only thing that matters is like, did you connect with the in-person? that it was intended for or not. Like, um, so in that sense, I'm like, I'm gonna kind of give a lot more leeway to the world where you could look at it and be like, ah, there's so much bad design in the world. Well, there's just, 
there's a lot of design that's not made for you, right? There's a lot yeah. of, but if it connects with other people, then it did what it was supposed to do, you know? Yeah. Well, and I think that's an important note too, that good design is not necessarily universal everywhere because there's going to be different needs. And I know, especially um, when I work with clients who are nonprofit, a lot of times they have to have what I would consider bad design because if the design is too good, the donors get upset. Yeah. Like, why, why are you spending all our money on, on this beautiful brochure? They get angry and they stop giving money if the brochure is too pretty. And so I have actually had clients where we didn't spend a lot on design. I just, I work with good designers. They, they would be like, you know, we can't use this. It's too pretty. Can you make it uglier? <laughs> Can you dump it down? Cause our donors aren't going to like this. So I think that that's really important. And I think the other thing too, is that there's so many design options available. Um, I know that most designers I know are not fans of Canva personally, myself, not being gifted in the world of design. I love Canva. Mm-hmm. I use it all the time. It's changed my life because I didn't have the budget to hire a quality designer, but I also, I did invest in design when it came to my logo and my color palette, the brand foundation. And so I think that's become an option for a lot of small businesses to be able to work with a designer and come up with the foundation of their visual brand and then be trained on how to use drag and drop templates to build their brand. So I think that to your point, there's a lot of different options. And I think when it comes to picking a budget or hiring your designer, it comes down a lot to what are your goals and what's on the line? Where are you at in business? How much are you investing? Um, when was it that you first discovered your talent or passion for design and art? Where did that come from? Um, well, I would probably go back to maybe that sort of opening story I kind of told you is just being a kid and sitting there staring out the window when I was supposed to be doing my work and like drawing spaceships. Um, it's just like, to me, I've always drawn. And then as soon as I could write, I started writing stories. I was like, um, so like I, I, and I've been throughout my, the creative part of my, my career, like have always done both design and writing, like interchangeably. I've switched from one to the other quite a lot. Um, yeah, I, I had a fifth grade teacher that really encouraged me on like writing stories. I wrote a story about a dog named Fred. And to my total surprise, like he had me come up to the front of the class and read it. And I didn't forget, I forget what he's even about, but it was like this adventure about this dog and like an eagle became his friend. And anyway, and it became this series where kids at school would ask me to write another one. And so that I, and every time I'd write one, I would write like three installments of this thing. And the teacher would have me stand up and read it. And people were like really into like the adventures of this dog, Fred. And I'm like, that sort of like early, you know, like elementary school teachers like have like a, you know, a, a massive outsized impact on your life. Right. Um, I mean, it was like early, like my, you know, kindergarten and second grade teachers that like first, like really actually kind of re- rewarded me for like drawing where they would give me gold stars for that, even though they knew I was supposed to be doing something else, you know? So um, I would say it's kind of early on sort of forms as part of your identity uh, somewhat, I think. Yeah. It's interesting. I didn't actually know that you had a background in writing as well. I think that that's an interesting relationship with creativity as well as just the role of copywriter and designer and how the words go with the images being on both ends of that. How do you balance that relationship between art and copy? Well, um, 
So there's kind of an interesting thing. Maybe a lot of people who haven't thought that much about design um, may not know, but there's kind of like a like there's like a scientific thing that happens actually in your brain structure with design, right? So it does something different from copy. So your the way that you know your visual works like you your your eyes take in you know light into your rods and cones, and then that visual image goes back and gets processed in your you know your uh, ocular center. But even before you have time to process it and figure out what it is you're, you're looking at or create an interpretation of it, um, that same signal is sent to the amygdala, which is your emotional core. Um, and that's the reason why that evolutionary speaking is like, because if it processes it and recognizes a, like the silhouette of a bear or a lion, it immediately sends the signal to your hypothalamus, which controls like your sort of automatic nervous system. That's the fight or flight reset, you know, uh, a center. That's also the thing that kind of, you know, controls like hunger and sex drive and the need to sleep and like these kind of core basic instincts that you have. So basically you're the signal before you even had to think about being able to think about what it is you're looking at, you're getting an emotional response from it. And you're getting a part of the, the nature of the emotional response is like, is this safe? Is it not safe? Right. And to some extent, it's also like, could be tapping into, I don't know for sure, but it could be tapping into that other part of the hypothalamus where it's like, you know, does this relate to like a potential mate or someone I love or be afraid of or food or something like that. Right. So you get this sort of like, gut level caveman instinct based on what comes into your brain before you get the chance for your words to actually tell you what that means, right? The words are the part that then label what you saw, right? So the words, uh, if they're done well, should kind of create this like little, this little gap where there's like a little spark of creativity where it's like what your visual thinks you see and then the brain reads creates this like little gap that causes this like little awesome, you know, moment of creative, you know, spark, right? Like that's the little snap that you get when you see like a great ad or, or something like that. Um, or even like in a movie where, you know, the hero turns around and says the perfect line right at that moment. Right. And you kind of get that smile on your face because you weren't expecting it. It was slightly, it was like fit the situation perfectly, but it was slightly unexpected but it gives you an interpretation of what you saw that's a little different than what you were expecting, right? So that sort of like little slight dissonance, I, I've, I find fascinating, right? I, it's like, that's like that little moment of magic um, that I think, you know, great ad people have been doing for years. Um, but uh, in, in general, I think it has to start with design. Like visually, people are already sorting things into like, this is meant for me. That's meant for someone else. Um, this, you know, conforms with my, my view of myself. This doesn't, um, this feels safe. This feels interesting. This feels boring. All that stuff is already happening before you've even interpreted it. Um, so then the, the words can just kind of help you make that like little leap and hopefully give it a sense of meaning and label it in a way that makes you want to know more. That's the whole point is just basically to get you to dive deeper and know more. Yeah, it, it is. I I'm fascinated by design psychology, even just color mm. psychology and how colors can evoke certain emotion, how certain words can trigger certain emotion. I think it's fascinating. And one thing that 
you said you talked about safety and you also talked about this is for me. I'm curious because I know that this is a big topic right now in the world of branding and design. And I don't know if there's an answer to this. I feel like it's more of a um, conceptual question, but in a world that is pushing for inclusivity and creating safe spaces for all people, being inclusive of everyone, but in a world of branding, which is in its nature exclusive, I'm targeting a specific person and therefore not targeting other people. How do you approach design in a way that is safe and inclusive, but also targeted? What has that done to the the landscape of design and branding on your end of things? Um, well, that's, that's pretty interesting. Um, so one thing I've observed, uh, especially with regard to like representation of different races uh, or even in, like different body types, uh, for example, in, in ads, is I came up in a world where you were supposed to basically, you, you have a profile of who it is your target is you're going after, and you have a demographic breakdown of what that person looks like. And even as part of like the, the strategy portion of that exercise, you know, oftentimes you're, you're finding a picture of, you know, here's what a affluent housewife in Texas looks like, right? And statistically, you could look at that and be like, well, according to statistics, then she's, you know, 75%, you know, Caucasian and she's between this and this age and they make this much money. And based on that, you can be like, so she probably would wear these kinds of clothes. She would have this kind of car. Her house would look like this. Right. And so you would design your ads to reflect that target profile. Right. And that was, the right way to do things, right? Because, and it like logically, it kind of makes sense. But then, like with the sort, like the the newer generation, I think has done something really interesting, um, where they're like, well, but wait a minute, there's no representation of someone like me in those ads. And statistically speaking, you, you could you could make the argument like, well, that's because like you represent like ten percent of the target audience. So why why should I represent you? But the flip side of that is. Once you start representing those people in those ads, then your market share of those types of people increases because now they see themselves interacting with your brand. So um, it, it was done initially, I think, because you know a younger generation of people started running marketing departments and creative departments and wanted it to be a more inclusive experience. They didn't want um, one body type or one race um, in there just because like the metrics showed that that's what, who was buying the product before. And so they did it more out of a sense of like maybe activism, right? Like I'm going to use the resources of this company to like create an activist statement. And this is going to be part of our brand that we're an inclusive brand, right? Even though we know that only 10% of our audiences actually looks like this person. But the interesting thing that happens which I don't think they were ever planning on is that they actually grew market share in those types of people that they started representing in those ads. They started associating themselves as like someone who would buy that product. And so it actually kind of worked in reverse, even though I don't think that was what the plan was. Um, and so now it's interesting. You see uh, briefs all the time. And even from some pretty old school people who in, in my mind are very traditional minded corporate dudes, right? 
um, that will ask specifically that we use people who are more, you know, racially diverse, for example, in an ad or, or in a website. So actually one of my clients I had over the last couple of years uh, is a private equity roll-up of like wine storage companies, um, which is like thinking about like, what is the problem they're trying to solve? They're just basically trying to make, you know, basically storing wine for wealthy collectors more hassle-free, right? So it's like, you know, like it's it's not the most activist type of mission you could ever <laughs> have in terms of solving the world's problems. But um, if you look at like a like the research on who are wine collectors, right? They're like, I mean, almost 90% are men, like, and mostly Caucasian men. But these guys who run this company are asking for more racial diversity in the advertising. Um, I think more because they don't want to be perceived as, as being insensitive, but I think what you do when you do that is you actually do open the door for all kinds of other people to be like, wait, maybe I should collect wine. That sounds interesting. I don't know. Maybe I'll go to a wine tasting this weekend. I don't know. Um, so I think it, it kind of works in reverse where it wasn't intended to that, but it's expanding the market and, and anymore, even the people that you would expect to, to sort of like not have bought into this are buying into it and, and not really seeing people as they're racing. We're just sort of seeing people's people like, well, right. We want an affluent man between this age and that age. I don't care what race he is. Yeah. I Well, and I think that representation is important because that's a lot of advertising is being able to see yourself in the product or service. And I know even things like um, I started doing Krav Maga, I don't know, a little about a year ago because of Gal Gadot, like Wonder Woman, I would have always thought that was just, I mean, it's Israeli street fighting. I thought that was for big burly men. Like I never would have seen myself, but then seeing someone who is this petite female who's a black belt and doing it, it gave me something to be able to see myself. And so I think that to your point, it, it is an interesting, um, it's interesting just being able to allow other people to see themselves in your product or service. And, I know I feel like we could talk about this for hours, but I want to be respectful of time. So I want to close with a final question. What are some basic design principles or design elements that should be in every design? Um, well, I would say this is probably somewhat self-apparent, but like simplicity is maybe the most important thing. And it gets more important like each year that goes by, right? So if you just think about it from a metric standpoint, I think the last thing I read was that like, on average, YouTube videos get uh, about three seconds of viewing before someone moves on to the next one. If they, something hasn't caught their attention, Instagram, it's like less than a second. Um, so you can think like more and more our media is going into these platforms and that's where your brand is showing up. And so your ability to very, very quickly elicit an emotional response with your design and have a statement that can't have too many words in it. It has to get to the point and has to also be interesting enough for me to want to learn more. All, all you're doing with those initial designs is earning the right to get another three seconds, right? And then that three seconds is earning the right to get like maybe 30 seconds of someone's time. So design anymore is, is kind of this building block of simplicity and it's somewhat driven by the platforms that we're consuming stuff in where it's, it's always been about simplicity, but 
everything now has to do the job that a billboard used to do. Like all media basically has to be what a billboard was like 20 years ago. That was the one medium where it had to work at 60 miles an hour where you can see it out of the corner of your eye. Did you, did you remember anything that you saw or not? Like that's the metric. So I would say that's more and more true. Um, in general, I think design because of this, uh, people rely more and more on heuristics than they used to. They don't stop and read stuff. So archetypes and heuristics, or if you're maybe more, um, I don't you know. You define so, that heuristics. Yeah. So heuristics are, are basically mental shortcuts. Okay. So, um, it's basically where like, if you read this book, um, by Daniel Kahneman called thinking fast and slow, mm-hmm. it, it's honestly a great book. I mean, anyone should read, but especially marketers and designers should read because it's kind of like the missing owner's manual for the human brain. It's basically like, this thing is like most people, um, you know, do something where they jump to a conclusion, they see one headline and they fill in the blanks about what the rest of the story is about. They make assumptions and they do that because it takes less mental processing power to get through your day versus thinking about every single thing that you're doing throughout the day. So that's pretty much the landscape where advertising and marketing and design lives is in that world of heuristics, which means you kind of have to rely on archetypes, like archetypal images of like motherhood. And, you know, there's a reason why babies are in so many ads. There's a reason why cute dogs are in so many ads. Like there's a reason why sex is in so many ads, right? It's like, these are simple to digest. They, um, you see it once and you get the meaning behind it without having to think it through. I hate to, I hate to, to say I, I would encourage that, but I'm saying again, that's sort of like a result of, of the media landscape that we're in. Like that's the reality as a designer to be effective. You have to know how to use those things effectively. Um, and then kind of the old ad agency trope of like the single-minded proposition, which I think anyone who's been trained in advertising or marketing probably has heard of, but um, it's even more true now, like in, in terms of the copywriting, like that idea that like, it doesn't matter how many benefits and features you have, you have to, you have to get one, you have to nail one thing that like earns someone's attention, right? Like what is the one benefit of all of them that is the most important to someone? And it's not the it's not the vitamin, it's the aspirin, right? It's the, the thing that's going to affect the, the pain point that they have, not the nice to have thing that you you're doing on top of it. So, you know, again, it, it all kind of funnels back to having a super crisp positioning and messaging strategy, which is ultimately the reason why I ended up moving from being a creative to a strategy person, because like, that's to me that good creative lives and dies by that. That's, that's the thing that empowers creatives to do effective work. So. Yeah. Well, awesome. I am going to resist the urge to go down all the rabbit holes that I want to go down uh, because there's so much more to the conversation that we could have. You are welcome back anytime. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your expertise. And for anyone listening, would love to hear your thoughts. Shoot us an email at embracetheish at gmail.com or hang out with us online at successfulish.com or Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn at embracetheish. Success and failure, none of opposite ends. Curveball hits, gotta know where to bend. The attitude will affect destination. 
and if you determine when you're gonna make it. Live between successes makes life rich. Live in every moment successfulish. Live between successes makes life rich. Live in every moment successfulish. Hey, successfulish. Another day, another task. Think fast with a whole nother mission complete. I'm successfulish. Pick up the weight, press on, and act on the visions to see. I'm successfulish. Sit back and bask in the glory of all the goals I achieve. Successfulish. Lose a stack, get it back, reinvest, hope, wait, then I roll up my sleeve. Successfulish. Another day, another task. Think fast with a whole nother mission complete. Successfulish. Pick up the weight, press on, and act on the visions to see. I'm successfulish. Sit back and bask in the glory of all the goals I achieve. Successfulish. Lose a stack, get it back, reinvest, hope, wait, then I roll up my sleeve. All this weight on my arms need both flex. In this race, put behind me most steps. Had a sort of learning curve, hope I don't crash. Hit your nerves when reserves got low cash. When I fail, realize that it won't last. You made it through in the past, just look back. Successfulish, you can see how the contrast fires and wins. Use the past and the bounce back. You can never win if you never go and do it. Figure it's a hard road, rarely ever cruising. Embracing all my wins with a handful of losing. Expect the drought season when the plan's going fluent. I can never really feel it's all how you view it. It's all a lesson, just depends how you use it. Get all the data and keep it all exclusive. Never ending journey and the growth is therapeutic. My identity is not in what you see. I am the better me. Mistakes others make, I see. Have a teaching me. Compare yourself to others is an insult to tragedy. We are made unique, gotta use again collectively. Broke down my goals and a few look toasome. Can't take them back cause you already spoke them. Easily regressive, you don't stay focused. Focus, live between success and every moment. Successfully. Another day, another task. Think fast with a whole nother mission complete. I'm successfulish. Pick up the weight, press on, and act on the visions to see. I'm successfulish. Sit back and bask in the glory of all the goals I achieve. Successfulish. Lose a stack, get it back, reinvest, hope, wait, then I roll up my sleeve. I'm successfulish. Another day, another task. Think fast with a whole nother mission complete. Successfulish. Pick up the weight, press on, and act on the visions to see. I'm successfulish. Sit back and bask in the glory of all the goals I achieve. Successfulish. Lose a stack, get it back. Reinvest, hope, wait, then I roll up my sleeve.